Amen. Lots of gospel, lots of good news already. Uh, what joy it is uh, to see and hear a proclamation of the gospel uh, and how it grips a heart and transforms a life. Uh, again, from faithful parents uh, to uh, faithful churches uh, to faithful friends, uh, you see how God goes and grabs sinners from different places in different ways, and he gets the glory for it all. Again, uh, flip in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 16. We will continue our series in the Gospel of Matthew. If you're new with us, if you're visiting, know that we usually just walk right through books of the Bible, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. Every now and then we'll do other things, but that, that's our normal pattern, uh, studying and sur- uh, kind of sitting underneath God's Word consecutively throughout the text as it unfolds. So we'll be in Matthew chapter 16, verse 13 to 20. I'll read that for us and pray, and then we'll jump in. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged his disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Father, bless the preaching of your word. For the great glory of your name through the person and work of your son and by the power of the Holy Spirit. Move now. Speak. Living God, speak a living word. In Jesus' name, amen. Think about some of the most important questions you've ever been asked in your life. And maybe think back through the entirety of your life. And so the early important questions maybe aren't quite as important now. So perhaps some of your first questions that you were asked that was important was maybe it was a friend at school. Will you be my friend? In that moment, man, do I say yes to this and now I have a new friend. Well, if you're new in school, then the answer is always yes. Of course, you want a new friend. Other important questions. What school do you want to go to? Will you take this particular job? Will you marry me? Not literally everybody. Wifey. That's all. She's already answered that one. Yes. But think about that question. Asking that question. Hearing that question. Life-changing answer to that question. How will we pay the bills this month? Are we ready for children? Should we adopt this particular child? Do we want to make an offer and try to buy this home? Or maybe more than just circumstantial questions, those internal questions we all tend to ask ourselves. Why is there so much evil in this broken world? Why is there so much evil in my own heart? What's the purpose of my life? Like, what's the point of it all? Why do we exist? What defines me? Like, where do I find my identity? Who determines who I am? Is it me? Is it culture? Is it friends? Is it God? Like who, who establishes and tells me really who I am? Is there a God? If so, who is God? Can he be known? Does he care? In our text today, the most important question, according to Orthodox Christianity, is asked, who is Jesus? Christian doctrine, Christian belief would say you will never be asked a question more important than that. In fact, your entire eternity, 
is determined based on how you answer that question. Now, we'll talk about how you can answer that question correctly and what has to happen prior to that. But how you answer that question determines your forever. There's no greater, no more important question than the question, who is Jesus from Nazareth? Who is this one? Matthew's gospel account has been walking through the life and ministry of Jesus. He, he opens up this gospel letting us know Jesus was born in the lineage that he was supposed to be, that the Messiah would be born in. Son of David, son of Abraham, indeed son of Adam. We've watched his life as we studied through this book and if you read through the gospels and how he taught with authority like no other. How he demonstrated compassion that you would never imagine that one who would be the one whom he claims to be would demonstrate to outsiders and outcasts of society. We've watched him heal the sick and raise the dead, minister to the poor, preach with unparalleled power, cast out demons, command the winds and waves to obey his voice. And them joints listened. <laughs> they obeyed him, speaking to creation, and suddenly it obeys him. He lived with the fullest, most pure and beautiful life and claimed he could forgive sins. Matthew's organized here his entire gospel account. And indeed, Jesus has taken his disciples on a particular journey, all to lead up to the summit of this one question. Who do you say that I am? No more important question for you to think about for the rest of your life than who is Jesus of Nazareth. And he turns and asks them this most important question. So what we're going to do today is we're going to look at two, this most important one, and how it forms the second question. We're going to look at two questions. Number one, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? To set the context there as we open up, the crowds have faded away. So Jesus has been healing people. He's been doing all kinds of incredible work. He fed the other 4,000 plus women and children. He's healed all kinds of people. But the crowds have, have faded away, and now him and the disciples are going up to Caesarea Philippi. It's about 25 miles north of Galilee. It's primarily largely a pagan or Gentile land. It's not where the people of God are. And he's taking them up. There's this journey, and now there's, there's a little bit of quiet. All the chaos has died down. And there's, you, there's a bit of a moment of uh, a reflection and meditation. He's guiding them up well, to this, uh, this city, this town, this area at the foot of Mount Hermon. It was built at the base of Mount Hermon by Herod uh, Philip the Tetrarch. It was a home to a temple god, uh, to, the, to the nature god Pan. Also to a, a god, um, a temple to uh, Augustus Caesar himself. So there's other religions, other worship going on in this area. And even for those who've studied through Exodus, it reminds me a little bit of when Yahweh's letting uh, his people know, hey, there's no God like me. Now Jesus suddenly is taking his disciples and he's going to ask them, hey, I, I want you to understand, I'm going to ask you some questions about my identity, and I want you to understand there's no God like me. Whether it's these men who claim to be gods or these false dead gods. But Jesus has been walking his disciples along this path, shepherding them to this very moment to reveal who he was. And friends, this is why we sang Psalm 23, God is a good shepherd. He will guide and walk with you through life, through ups and downs, peaks and valleys, difficulties, exciting moments and difficult moments, through tears of joy and tears of sorrow. And often he will guide you along this path of life and then come and bring you to a moment of decision where he asks you a question that you must answer. He knows how to guide you. He knows how to get your attention. There's a reason you're sitting in the chair you're sitting in. It's not happenstance. <laughs> He means to guide and shepherd his people to particular conversations because he's a good shepherd who disciples and leads us, and even leads us to a moment of decision. Moments like the moment in our text. And you have to decide in these moments. When Jesus guides you, when God the good shepherd guides you to these moments where you have to make a hard decision, you have to decide, will I follow the crowds or will I follow the Christ? 
Am I going to go with what everybody else is saying about him? Or do I believe him and what he says about him? These moments of decision, who really is the king? Do you say culturally Jesus is, but your life totally disagrees with you? Where are you in this moment of decision? And so the first question, as Jesus shepherds these disciples to this decision, again, we'll read 13 and 14 together, is who do people say that the Son of Man is? Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others Jeremiah, one of the prophets. Now, Son of Man is Jesus' most uh, common use self-referential title. So this is commonly the way he refers to himself. It's a fulfillment of Daniel chapter 7, verse 13, though that's not his primary point in using it right here. It is a fulfillment, but that's not what he's doing. If you'll look down in the next verse, he's going to turn and say, but who do you say I am? The primary thing he's doing with this question is, hey, out there in those ancient Near Eastern streets, what are people saying about me? (laughs) Who do they say that I am? What are you hearing when you put your ear to the streets and you've been hanging out with the crowds? What are the crowds saying about who I am? What's their answer? And the disciples gladly answer, well, some people think you're John the Baptist. Herod thought that, chapter 14, verse 2. He thought it was John the Baptist resurrected from the dead. So Jesus, like, well, you're asking who do people think you are. Some people you think you're John the Baptist, that Herod had beheaded and got back up from the dead, and so they're a little nervous. Others think you're Elijah, that you're the, the, the prophet to come, the forerunner. The one that John the Baptist was, they think you're that, that, that Micah 5, uh, verse 4 and 5, this prophecy that there's a coming Messiah, they think you're the, the, the forerunner that lets everybody know the Messiah is coming. Still yet others, Jeremiah, the weeping prophet, the prophet that had this negative word for God's people and God's people rejected him. They kind of feel that way about you, like you got a negative word for God's people and so we don't want to hear what you're trying to say because we don't want to be around another weeping prophet. So notice the answer, who do people say that I am? At minimum, even Jesus' contemporaries, even those who do not believe Jesus is the Messiah, would say he's uniquely spiritual, and he's so unique in in what he's doing in his power, he's at least got to be a a really great prophet, at minimum. So even those who are like, I don't believe in Jesus, had to acknowledge because of the life he lived and the uniqueness of his power, the uniqueness of his teaching, that he's got to be somebody special. We might not be ready to say Messiah yet, but he's got to be somebody important. His life was too extraordinary and compassionate to take seriously and then have extremely negative opinions about him. (laughs) Like you can't really study the life of Christ and come to like super negative conclusions about him unless you just want to reject him altogether and that's what you want as you go study him. Like he's too compassionate. He's willing to go against religious authorities and to side with the uh, outcasts and the downtrodden and the poor. He teaches, he heals, he does all these incredible acts of mercy. And so even his contemporaries, again, that don't believe he's the Messiah are like, but he is someone special. Plenty of people have non-hostile opinions about Jesus. But here's the problem. Jesus isn't okay with a non-hostile opinion about him. (laughs) He's like, am I God or not? Like, you don't get this middle ground, this soft, like, space where you get to make an opinion. (laughs) But this is what they wanted to do. It's what we see even today in our day. Right? But God is a good shepherd. He pursues lost and straying sheep. He's often after you and seeking to bring you to himself or back to himself, and he brings you to a moment of decision. And even right now, think about it. If Jesus really did heal all those people, 
If he really did teach like no one else, if he really had the authority to cast out demons with just a word, if he really could speak to winds and waves and winds and waves obey him, if he really did to have this indescribable compassion for the outcast, and then he had this band of followers who some have had nothing in common except the fact they followed him, and suddenly these band of followers, these ragtag, ordinary disciples are increasing in boldness and humility at the same time. Like, who is this man? Who is this man? Like, you've got to come up with an explanation. You've got to do something with Jesus. You can't be neutral. You've got to ask the question, like, who is this? Who lives like this? Who has this kind of power? Who is this man? And just as you start thinking, yeah, what are all the rumors about Jesus out there in those streets? Jesus turns with the second question and says, okay, great. Glad I got you stirred up and thinking about what other people think about me. Second question, who do you say I am? And again, he's shepherded them to this moment. And there is this, I want to get your wheels turning on all the different opinions about who this man is. So you can think about other religious views about Jesus. But then Jesus turns to his disciples and says, but who do you say I am? I've asked you about them. I want to know about you. There's this, there's this intensity that turns and says, no, no, I'm putting the focus right now on you. Who do you say that he is? It's easy to say, oh, people believe this and that. All right, bet, but what do you think? <laughs> What's your decision? Can't you just feel the personal pressure of this question? This is one of my favorite moments in all of Scripture. Because, again, I can just kind of picture the disciples like, man, we've been with them. We're seeing all this stuff. This is like, we got a really cool seat to all these things he's doing. And, oh, yeah, those people, oh, they think this, they think that, they think this. What do you think? And it's like, oh, snap, this thing's just turned real quick. <laughs> like, it just got really intense because now there's this personal question that Jesus is asking me. Remember, uh, when I was a student at UNC Charlotte, I had a professor who was not a Christian, was a religion professor, kind of famous uh, and, and really loved stirring up the class and, and particularly going after Christians and making them concerned and basically would stir up the class and try to get everybody in the room to believe everything they thought about the Bible was absolute lunacy and they needed to start over and they knew nothing. So he'd stir stuff up, people start cursing and I mean, it got crazy. It was, it was out of control. Um, and then he would lean over. I'd be sitting back there minding my business and he would lean over and say, Mr. Darst, what do you think? He knew I was a believer. He knew I had particular convictions and opinions. He knew that all the nonsense going around the room was doing something to me, and he would lean and ask me the question, what do you think? What is your judgment about this thing? And this is what Jesus does with these disciples in this moment. Okay, I hear all that the world's saying. What do you say? What is your conclusion about who Jesus is? He intends for you to feel that. What's your identity about, or your judgment about the identity of Christ? What is the right answer? Who is Jesus really? Who do you say? He's not asking your parents. He's not asking your friends like what you think. He's not, he's not asking popular culture, popular culture's opinion. He's asking you, who do you say that Jesus is? What is your conviction? What is your judgment? Who is this man? He's not asking anybody else what you think. He's asking you what you think. What is this judgment? What is this moment? Who do you say Jesus of Nazareth was? Simon Peter replies in verse 16, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. Peter answers as the spokesman for the disciples, and he represents in this answer the theological peak of Matthew's gospel to this point. Again, the good shepherd has been shepherding his disciples to this point personally. Matthew's unpacking his gospel, and he's written it in such a way so that you would see this is the big point. All the healings, all that stuff we talked about uh, two weeks ago, those are, those are true. Those are real. They're not the main point. The main point is Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. That's the main point. 
And all of this was to convince you and show you Jesus is the Christ. One commentator helpfully summarizes, Peter makes the definitive statement for which the whole story has been preparing. Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. Two observations I just want to make about this confession that Peter makes. Number one, it's a lofty, it's the most lofty confession. Jesus, Peter couldn't have used loftier words. Like, he couldn't have big up Jesus more with this statement than he did. So you're the Messiah, the long-awaited hope of Israel, the one we've been looking for and longing for, the one who has 400 years of silence between the prophets and then when John the Baptist shows up, the one we've been anticipating, the one we've been hoping for, the one we've been looking for, you're him. You're the son of the living God. You're not a son of a God. You're not a son of a dead God. You're the son of the living God. This is a massive statement that Peter makes. He's saying, you're God. You're, like, you're the Messiah. And Peter doesn't have all his Christology together. He don't have all his theology. He doesn't have all that we have. He doesn't have the epistles yet. He doesn't see all this. All he knows is the one we've been looking for, you're him. You're the Christ. You're the son of the living God. So it's, it, it's a most lofty confession. But I also want to point out it's a relatively lonely confession. Like this is not a popular statement among Jewish contemporaries of Peter. Other than this ragtag that's following Jesus, the rest of culture will be like, oh, hold up. What'd you say to him? What, what are you saying about this Jesus? You're acting like he's the son of God. Yep. <laughs> that's what's happening. But Peter's making this moment. So again, this is not like, man, everybody's going to retweet this post. <laughs> like he makes a statement, everybody's going to amen. No, he makes a statement, hardly anybody's going to amen. Only those who really believe Jesus is the Christ are going to amen. Everybody else is going to be like, you're out of your mind. It's important that we understand this. J.C. Ryle says the glory of Peter's confession lies in this, that he made it when few were with Christ and many against him. He made it when the rulers of his own nation, the scribes and priests and Pharisees, were all opposed to his master. He made it when our Lord was in the form of a servant without wealth, without royal dignity, without any visible mark of a king. Friends, the same is true of you. If you want to fit in with broader culture today, do not confess Jesus is the Christ. If, if your driving motivation is to say amen with most people, you're going to reject Jesus. Just know that's coming. So you're only going to say he's the Christ, the son of the living God, if you really believe that. Who do you say that he is? That's the question. Not who do they say that he is now. We asked that question, but now we're asking who do you say that he is? That's what you have to give and account for. This lofty confession is indeed, though, the correct answer to the most important question. We see that it's the correct answer because look how Jesus responds in verse 17. And Jesus answered, blessed are you, Simon Barjona. Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Now this word blessed, he used the exact same word that he used in the Sermon on the Mount when he had the Beatitudes. Blessed are the blessed are the blessed. Same, same word, blessed. And it just means to, to, be, to, be, uh, to be happy, to be fortunate, to be blessed. So he's saying, blessed are you, happy are you, fortunate are you, Peter, and all who confess that I'm the Christ, the Son of the living God. There is an internal, inner man peace that comes from recognizing who Jesus is and trusting that. Not with worldly happiness per se, but with this rich religious delight of holy joy in the inner man. When you see Jesus for who he is, it does something in your core. There is a peace, a blessedness, a fortunate, a, a privileged mentality to understand, no, no, I really see him. He really is the son of God. He really is the savior of the world. And he really does love me. Blessed are you when you confess this. 
And the more accurately you see him, the more joy you have. And I'm not, again, I'm not talking about like worldly success and joy. I'm talking about that inner man joy. That I don't care what's going on outside in this world or in my life. If I have Christ, I have all that I need, joy. Because you will have sorrows in this life. But how blessed are you when you see Jesus is worthy of the highest praise, the loftiest confession, even if you're lonely in a broader culture. I got Christ, I don't care if I have anything else, as long as I have him. Now, what leads a person to this kind of conclusion? So again, it's a lofty confession. It might be lonely in the midst of culture, but what leads a person? Like, how do you get there? Notice what Jesus does. He makes it very clear with Peter when he celebrates Peter's confession. And indeed, when he celebrates all of our faith and trust in him, that this didn't come because people worked out their questions and all of their objections and figured everything out. It was not flesh and blood that revealed this to to you. It's not ordinary human endeavor that led to faith. It was the gift of revelatory grace of the Father. That's why you believed, because God revealed himself to you. So this is what Jesus says, blessed are you, Peter. Like God, my Father, my Father, not in my Father has opened up your eyes so that you might see I'm the Son. Then you might see I'm your Savior. God has opened your eyes. The, the God of the universe has revealed himself. Blessed are you, Simon Barjona. A Christian, never forget the confessing Jesus is the Christ. Seeing him as beautiful, looking to him as the only hope of your salvation, in that God has personally revealed himself to you. The God of glory, if you're in Christ, has revealed himself to you personally. That doesn't lead to arrogant judgmentalism. Who am I? Who are we that you would be mindful of us? That you would open up our heart and our minds and our eyes to see the Lord Jesus, to see who he is, that he is the Christ, the son of the living God. God has opened your once spiritually blind eyes to see his beautiful son. That's what Jesus said in John 6, 44. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him and I raise him up on the last day. That's why Jesus, when he's praying to his father, says, I thank you, father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you've hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me, my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. What does Paul say in Ephesians 2? By grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Friends, who do you say that he is? Do you, do you think, again, he's like some good moral teacher? Again, let's, let's call on our friend C.S. Lewis on this, and this is nonsense. Like, you can't call him a good moral teacher and actually read what he teaches, because he teaches that he's God. <laughs> so if you claim to be God and you're not, I'm not going to call you a good moral teacher. So Lewis says he's a liar, he's a lunatic, or he's Lord. He's either lying, he's not God, and he knows it, and he's lying, so you shouldn't trust him, not good moral teacher. Lunatic, the dude's a nut job who thinks he's God, but he's not, or he's the Lord. He is who he said he is. So again, who do you say that he is? Was he a prophet as the Muslims say? Was he a man who became a God like the Mormons say? Was he one who became the Messiah and King as the Jehovah's Witness say? Or is he the Christ, the Son of the living God, the center point of human and redemptive history, the eternally existing Son of the living God, the Messiah, the Redeemer, the King, the Lord and Savior, the Judge of the universe, whom at some point every knee will bow to and confess he's King. Non-Christian friend, I challenge you to take this question seriously. Please, please don't be an agnostic because of lazy indifference. 
deciding not to decide. When your death day comes, you will decide. The Christians were right or they were wrong. So, so what are you really going to gain by putting this decision off now? What is it that you're getting by not deciding who this man is? Is he really the Christ, the Savior, full of compassion and mercy? And if so, don't you want to worship him now if he really is the source of all joy? As your Christian friends, we really do believe this is the most important question you'll ever answer for the rest of your life. Who is Jesus? He's the Christ, the Son of the living God. Second question, who is the church? Now, this is the first time Jesus speaks about the church in the Gospels. It's the only place in the Gospels where he actually talks about the church. There are many other passages, usually in the New Testament, when the New Testament talks about the church, it's talking about a local church like this one. Here, Jesus is talking about the universal church that is made up of every Christian who's ever repented of sin, trusted in Christ, and entered into the universal church of God across time and space. This is every Christian ever. That's the church he's talking about in this. And there are three, three quick observations about the church I want to point out to you as we look and see his words. Observation number one, the church belongs to Jesus. So again, Peter's made this confession, and he's going to respond with a promise, and he's going to start talking about the church. And the first thing he, we see is the church belongs to Jesus. Look at verse 18. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now the word church, ecclesia, ecclesia, it's the Old Testament word that was used to talk about all the sacred assemblies of Israel in the Old Testament. So any sacred assembly gathering of the people of God was called the, an, an uh, ecclesia, an ecclesia. It was, it was a gathering of, of the people of God. So Jesus is now using this word for the first time saying, hey, there's a new people of God, the new covenant people of God. I'm calling you that. So the way we thought about the people of God in the old covenant, I'm telling you I'm forming a new people of God, and that's who we're talking to right now. And notice, again, in this case, in this moment, what we see is Jesus is using this word to demonstrate that this new family is a, is a faith family rather than a physical one. It's a family not that you're born into, but that you're born again into, that he's establishing this new covenant community. Now, there's plenty of controversy about this text, about church history. So you need to know, all kinds of fights in all kinds of uh, eras and all kinds of denominations have happened over this verse. And the primary reason is, what, like, what is he saying about Peter? So he says, you are Peter, and on this rock I'll build my church. He says that he's using a wordplay. Peter's name sounds like the word for rock. So he's using a wordplay. He says, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. So when he says Peter, and on, on this rock I'll build my church, what does he mean? Does he mean that he'll build the church on this one man, Peter? Or is it the confession Peter has just made? Chrysostom um, argued this in the fifth century. Or is it the teaching of Jesus himself? So like in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, uh, anyone who hears these words and does them is like a man who built his house on the rock. Is it the teaching of Jesus? Or is Jesus himself the rock? Who's the rock? And what's it got to do with Peter? Like that's the big controversy, that's the big fight. The Roman Catholic Church wrongly creates an official office of Pope out of this. It says this begins a succession where it goes from Peter down to the Pope, even up to this day. Now, the, the clear difficulty exegetically in the text is there's nowhere in this text succession is talked about. Nowhere else in the rest of the New Testament is any of that biblical, is any of that talked about or even argued. So Peter is significant, but none of the succession is there, so all of that has to be read into and created. So you won't find any de details about that in the Scripture. So the question, though, is, okay, but what, what is Jesus saying? Like, what is he saying about Peter in this rock? I think simply that he's, he's saying he's building his church on Peter because of Peter's confession. So he's like, you know, Peter, I really am building it on you because of this confession. You can't separate Peter's confession from Peter as representative of the disciples. 
So it's, it, there's a confession coming out. He is this leader. He's the spokesperson of these disciples. And Christ is saying, I'm going to build this church on you. Now, it's obvious, though, that Peter didn't have more authority than the rest of the disciples. Because when we flip over to chapter 18, we're going to talk about church discipline in a few weeks. And in that text, he's going to talk about the keys of the kingdom and authority. And it's going to be a, a plural you talking to all the disciples. So he's going to use the same words. And over there, he's going to say, I'm talking to everybody, not just Peter. Right here, he's talking to just Peter. So that's not going to contradict this. So he's not clearly saying Peter has greater standing than the disciples. And even, again, chapter 18, verse 1. Like, there's a question among the disciples, hey, Jesus, who's the greatest? <laughs> like, that question doesn't make sense if Peter's already established as you're the one we're building everything on. It wouldn't make sense to have that fight among the disciples. So there's something that he is saying about Peter. There's something he's not saying about Peter. Peter did, however, begin preaching in Acts. And suddenly gospel goes forth. So there is a uniqueness to his life and this confession, his leadership among the disciples. But soon after, he fades away and the Apostle Paul's ministry takes off. So what then is the church built on? <laughs> like, what do we believe then? Paul helps us, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20 through 22. The church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So the prophets pointed to Jesus, the apostles confessed Jesus, and Jesus is the chief cornerstone. The church is built on the apostles and prophets who show us Jesus is the cornerstone. Now, if you've got more questions about this, if you're a Roman Catholic background, love to have a conversation, love to get with you and, and sit through and study some of those things. But right now, I need you to understand, that's not even the main point of all this. <laughs> if you know about it, there's tons of controversy, so I felt pastorally I need to at least address it. Primarily, what is Jesus showing us? This is, I will build my church. The church belongs to Jesus. That's the main point we're seeing right here. <laughs> he's like, no, no, I'm the one who will build my church. So he's being very clear. No, no, Peter, this is right. You've given the right confession. I'm going to build this on you, but I'm the one who will build my church upon Peter in this confession. Christ is the head of the church, not the elders, not the congregation, not the deacons, not the presbytery, not the assembly, not a pope, not a denomination or a convention, not the state, not popular opinion, not people with the most money, not people with the most popularity. Jesus is the head of the church. This is what he's saying. I will build my church. I'm the one who runs things here. I am the king. The church is not a democracy by the people and for the people. It's a monarchy by the king and for the glory of the king and the good of his citizens. We're not, we don't vote him into office. He's the king. He doesn't need your permission. He doesn't need your vote. He runs things. The church belongs to Jesus. You know, I think this is one of the problems with our church today is that we think we can build it ourselves with our own methods and strategies and wisdom and our own power. No wonder so many local churches die or fill with unbiblical nonsense because they're trusting in their own power. And if you're trusting in your own power to do this work, guess who gets the credit for you doing the work? You. Well, friends, we don't have the power and we don't deserve the glory. It is Christ who will build his church because he is the head of the church. The church belongs to Jesus. But notice this promise that it belongs to him comes with lots of good news. Second observation is the church is indestructible. The church is indestructible. So again, he says, I tell you, you're Peter on this rock. I'll build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now, gates were critical in the ancient Near East. So you'd have walls around cities or towns or villages and then the gate would be that thing that, that literally either let the right people in or protected and kept the wrong people out. 
So then a gate was the place, safe passage, so that the community would stay safe. The citizens of the kingdom would stay safe. And hell or Hades uh, was the place of the dead. This is where when you die, you would go. And so the, the picture here that we're seeing is uh, what, what Jesus is saying is everybody's a prisoner to the grave. Everybody's going to die. That's happening. And there are gates, and you're trapped inside of that, that death chamber that's coming. It's coming. And everyone is there. Everyone's a prisoner to that. Except for Jesus, the son of the living God. He's not confined by death. He's not restrained by death. Death is no threat to him. He's the son of the living God. The death, therefore, is no threat to God, the God of life, or to the church that he's building. The gates of the grave aren't great when the church of Jesus Christ comes up against it. This is what Jesus is saying. I will build my church, and my church is indestructible. Like, death can't stop it. Satan can't stop it. Hell can't stop it. Why do y'all think y'all sing so loud when we sing those kinds of things? Because there's something in your core that says, no, no, I know this is true. My God has purchased me. He's bought me. He's saved me by his blood. He's taken me to glory, and nothing will stop him. I am his, and he is mine, and therefore I am safe. The king's church cannot lose. Death and hell cannot stop her. But I also want you to notice this means the church's primary posture is not defense. Like a gate is a defensive weapon, not an offensive one. So the church, too many Christians, too many churches get so caught up in trying to keep church safe that they never actually go fulfill the Great Commission. Instead, they just sit still and argue of safety of theory and debate and never tell people about the Savior that can save them from death. <laughs> so it's like, no, we got to stop worrying about, oh, let's, let's make sure, oh, no, no, we got to go advance the gospel. we got to tell people Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and nothing can stop him. We got to trust in Christ. We're not here to keep the world out from among us. We're here to take over the world with the love of God in Christ. Death cannot stop us because death cannot stop our king. We serve a resurrected king. The tomb's empty and the throne's occupied. Now, this doesn't mean that no local church will die. Churches are planted and churches die. They come and they go, local churches. But the universal church will be just fine all the way to eternity. And this is our confidence. This is our hope. The universal church is indestructible. Reminds me of a great quote by D.L. Moody. He says, someday you'll read in the papers that D.L. Moody of East Northfield is dead. Don't you believe a word of it. At that moment, I shall be more alive than I am now. I shall have gone up higher, that is all, out of this cold clay tenement into a house that is immortal, a body that death cannot touch, that sin cannot taint, a body flash, fashioned like unto his glorious body. I was born of flesh in 1837. I was born of spirit in 1856. That which is born of flesh may die. That which is born of spirit will live forever. The church of Jesus Christ is indestructible. It belongs to him. And last observation it's an embassy of Christ's kingdom. Now, just like the United States has embassies in other lands, so we have, for, we have people in foreign lands representing our land, speaking on behalf of and caring about the interest of our land. So, too, does the kingdom of God have embassies, outposts on earth. The kingdom of heaven has outposts of the kingdom on earth, local churches that are proclaiming we're from a foreign land. <laughs> this is why we don't fit in. We're not home currently. But we're here gathering people for this foreign land in this great glory, far from home, but representing our king and his kingdom. And so Jesus in verse 19 says, I'll give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Now in this, Christ is demonstrating the authority and significance that he's giving to the church. By using keys as another metaphor that he's saying he's giving to the church. 
giving to Peter. And the, the, uh, again, by extension, we'll see in chapter 18 to the rest of the disciples. And then as gospel goes forward to the church. But there's a substantial responsibility and authority that he's giving. What does a key do? It unlocks and locks a door. So death might have a strong gate, but Jesus is saying he's giving the, the, the church the keys that can open up the gate. So he says, no, no, death has a gate. Hell has a gate. I'm giving you the keys to open it up. I'm giving you the keys to proclaim gospel so that dead people might come out of death and into new life. Now, just to be clear, the church and the kingdom are not the same thing. They're not. But Jesus is saying he's given the keys to Peter and to open and close the door of the kingdom. In other words, his kingdom rule and reign will be demonstrated through the indestructible church that he's building. He's saying my kingdom is going to be flexed through my church that I'm building that will never die. Peter and apostles are given the keys to do the real binding and loosening or opening and closing of the kingdom. In contrast to the Pharisees, why did Jesus get so heated with the Pharisees? Why did he give them so much smoke? Matthew 23. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. For you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would go in to enter. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte, and when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. Jesus says, no, I give my keys to my people that they might open the kingdom, that more might come in. (laughs) And these Pharisees and scribes are creating laws and actually keeping and closing and knocking people out of the kingdom rather than inviting them in. The people of God are to open the door to the kingdom and reign and rule of Jesus by preaching the gospel and close or loose them or let them out of the church when they demonstrate, I don't want to submit to King Jesus. Matthew 18, let's read it. I've referenced it a number of times. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the ecclesia, the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile, a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. So he's saying, no, I flex my kingdom authority through my church. Gospel proclamation, true profession of Christ. Gates of the kingdom opened up. Come in. You deny Christ, you reject Christ with your life, you refuse to repent, you refuse to bow the knee of Christ, then the church is to remove you from the church and uh, demonstrate that you're not a part of the kingdom. And this is what he's saying. So even the language, the construction of the language uh, is, is like, you shall have been loosed. You shall have been opened. Like what the church does is not determining whether people go to heaven or hell. Only Christ can determine that. Only people can trust and confess Jesus Christ. But the church is to recognize by faithfully following what King Jesus has said about his indestructible church and faithfully preaching and teaching his word. And in so doing, what we're doing is showing and demonstrating what has already happened in the kingdom of heaven. So there's an authority, there's a responsibility to being a part of the local church. The church has authority to affirm or unaffirm a a person's profession of faith. That's why we take membership so seriously here. This is what brings us together. And it's beautiful. Like it brings people together who otherwise it makes no sense that they're together. And this is the most important together there could possibly be. Because we've answered the most important question that could ever be asked. Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. We've got the most important thing in common. We're family. And this is why it's important to acknowledge, no, 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 we trust in Christ. We may disagree on plenty of other things. But we agree Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. So again, to be clear, the church cannot save a person. Only God can do that. But the church is supposed to say, yes, that was a true profession of the true Christ according to Scripture. Or no, you're refusing to bow the knee. We can no longer affirm that profession to be legitimate. 
That's what Jesus means by whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And then Jesus wraps up just like you think he would. Verse 20. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. <laughs> Time out, Jesus. I, you, you caught me with that one. Like the whole point was that you're the Christ. And you're like, shh. <laughs> like don't tell nobody. It's like, okay, time out. What? They just got the most important question right. You've just told them they're the new community now that's going to represent your kingdom and open and close. Why would he say this? If you can just skim over and look at chapter 21, our text that will start next week. Or verse 21, I'm sorry. Chapter 16, verse 21. We'll see quickly and then we'll conclude. Why, why did he tell them to be quiet? From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Why did he tell them to be quiet? Because Jesus often advances his kingdom in ways that's surprising to the natural mind. Like, you're the Messiah? You're the Christ? Let's set up shop. Smash all the enemies. Use your power. Overthrow everyone. Let's take power. Jesus is like, shh. No, no, no. The way I advance my kingdom, I am the conquering king, and that's coming. But first, I'm the suffering servant. First, I must suffer and die because I'm compassionate. And I want this door to be open to more to come in. And for you to come in, your sin has got to be dealt with. For God to keep his holiness intact, his mercy and his grace and compassion, something's got to be done, and I'm the plan. I'm going to live for you. Right now, that's what I'm doing. This perfect life that has rocked you, that you've watched, that you've, I've shown you everything you need to say, that I'm the Christ, the Son of the living God. And then I'm going to go to Calvary's cross, and I'm going to die for you in your place. I'm going to go into death as a suffering servant. But on the third day, best believe I'm getting up because I am the conquering king. I've got the keys of death. So death can't hold me. I am a wonderful Savior. That's why you sing that way. Because he got up from death and demonstrated, no, that's who I am. So shh, don't tell anybody yet, because that's how I'm going to save the whole world. You keep following me. And even though, literally, Peter's going to get rebuked super heavy next week. Because he's like, oh, hold up, I don't like this plan. <laughs> like even Jesus' faithful disciples, one minute can be like, you're the Messiah. Next moment, Jesus is like, get behind me, Satan. It's like, whoa, what just happened? That was quick. Because God does things ways we don't think he would do them. Because he's more compassionate and kind than we think he is. And he's grabbing and bringing more people in. In conclusion, as you go to work this week, as you parent your children this week, as you go to class this week, as you eat and drink, as you work and play, as you study and pray, make sure you do so with this humble reminder. If you're in Christ, God has revealed himself to you. If you believe he's the Christ, the son of the living God, God has revealed himself to you. And he's placed you in his family that is literally indestructible. Even if you die, you don't really die. You live more on that side of death than you've ever lived in this life. And to the non-Christian friend, repent and believe. Trust in Christ. We want you in. Know that we're clear and we want you in. And we understand it might be like, this seems offensive. Well, what if it's true? What if the only way you can be saved is to say Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God? We believe that. Do you? Talk to us. Let's close in prayer. Father.